Okay, we are coming to a close in our study of the Minor Prophets. So we are looking at the book of Obadiah tonight. It's been just over a year that we've been uh, working through the Minor Prophets, a little over than um, a year, but a year's worth of lessons. So the book of Obadiah is the last of the prophets that we have to study. Um, because of the schedule of November and December, uh, we're, we're going to do just a single night on Obadiah, do the overview as well as a walk through the text because it's the shortest of all the books in the Old Testament. It's just 21 verses. Um, and then next week, we're going to do the overview that, uh, that prompted the series uh, so a night covering the Apocrypha, what it is, how we're supposed to think about it uh, as Christians and not believing that those are canonical books. So as Protestant uh, Christians, not believing those are canonical books, how are we intended to think about them? So that was one of the questions from some folks in the congregation that prompted this study in the Minor Prophets. So um, we're just wrapping that up this week and then next week because as it turns out, the next few Wednesday nights, uh, I will not be here, and so it seemed wise to, to go ahead and finish and put a period on things. So we'll just do Obadiah tonight, Apocrypha one night next week, um, and then we will be done with this series. So um, we have spent, again, quite a bit of time in these minor prophets, and we've learned a lot. There have been a variety of, um, of different styles uh, within these prophets, different uh, messengers and those to whom the messages have been written, different purposes, a lot of the same things, themes that we've seen uh, throughout the prophets. And uh, tonight we'll bring that to a close. So one of the reasons we saved Obadiah for last was in order to establish uh, perhaps a better guess at the timing of the book. And um, I think we will be able to do that at least from my perspective. So uh, the book of Obadiah, one of the things that makes it interesting, unique, is that we know very little about the person Obadiah. So once again, just like Joel, as he begins in chapter, uh, well, chapter one, there's only one chapter, but verse one, the vision of Obadiah, this is really all that we know about the prophet. So there's not a lot of other information about where he's from, uh, his family, his personality, his purpose in writing aside from just relaying this report from the Lord. So that's all there is to say about the, the person, Obadiah. And then the timing is there are no specific uh, markers that are mentioned as far as the timing are concerned, which normally you'd find in these first few verses. So we're left to the contents and some of the clues within the contents to determine to the best of our ability the time in which Obadiah would be found. So... One of the interesting things about this book is, and you look in verse 1, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. So this is an oracle written through Judah to the uh, country, the nation, the peoples of Edom. So I was, I found it, um, I think, I think this will be an encouraging thing for those of you who are here and for those who are here on Sundays as we work through Genesis that uh, Edom uh, represents or are the descendants of Esau. 
And so as we've been working through particularly the Jacob Chronicles, that we, we've seen the origin of the conflict, so it helps us inform Obadiah, but then Obadiah will help inform a little bit of what happens next in Genesis uh, as we see the table of Esau's nation or the Toledot of Esau, what comes from his family, and, and he's established in Edom. Um, and we see throughout Israel's history that Edom and Israel are constantly at one another, um, so that's one of the reasons that this book is written against Edom. We've, we've seen this one other time throughout uh, the prophets that we had in Nahum written against Assyria, right, or Nineveh. And so this is one of the other prophets written exclusively or primarily to one of the nations uh, against which God is going to bring judgment. So, some of the characteristics, um, it's the shortest of the prophets, it's written to Edom via Judah, and it certainly demonstrates the conflict between Israel and Edom. So let's think through that for a moment, maybe look at a few passages that describe or establish the conflict between the two, which will help to make sense of why God is angry with the people of Edom. So we won't revisit Genesis 25 through 27. But that is the birth of the two boys, Jacob and Esau. And even in the womb, they are described as warring nations, right? Those who are going to fight for many years. And then uh, you take what actually occurred, that Jacob was deceptive and he stole the blessing. And then he departed and he went up to Haran and he spent years and years up there. And then where we're at in Genesis is, is the next portion. He's on his way back and is going to reconcile with his brother. What we'll see is that while the two brothers appear to be reconciled, their descendants most certainly are not. So fast forward in Israel's history, and you can turn over to Numbers 14, or Numbers 20, excuse me, Numbers 20. So this is post-Exodus and pre-conquest, so Moses is currently leading the family of Israel, and he is leading them toward Canaan, and they are on their way to the land, and the easiest route at this point would be passage through Edom. So Numbers 20, 14 through 21, I think this is the first and strongest mention uh, of Edom post-Jacob Chronicles. So verse 14 begins, Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, there's the relationship, you know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we dwelt in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Then Edom said to him, You shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said to him, We'll go by the highway. And if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Only let me pass through on foot, nothing more. And he said, you shall not pass through. 
So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. So thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. So you can see even in sort of the establishment, like the movement toward the land of Canaan that Israel is going to possess, uh, even then this brother nation sort of to the southwest of, the southeast of Israel, there's contention, there's conflict. So that's beginning as far as uh, Israel's possession of Canaan is concerned. That's even before it, right at the beginning of it, you might say. So from the beginning of their possession of Canaan all the way to the end, which let's say that that's, uh, at least for our, to our point in history, that that's Babylon comes through and in various waves attacks the people of Israel and uh, establishes the conquest of uh, Judah and Jerusalem and they take captives. And so there's the exilic period. And during that time, Edom takes advantage of Judah's vulnerability. And after Babylon has swept through, Edom goes and takes their spoils as well. They go and as a, sort of like dance on the grave and take whatever might be left over. And so they, uh, they seem to take advantage of the vulnerability of Judah in the conquest uh, of Babylon. So we'll look at a few passages that reference that. Psalm 137 is one of them. This is a psalm uh, that is a lament in in the exile, Psalm 137. They're longing for Zion while they're in Babylon, while they're in a foreign land. So one, uh, we'll just, it's short, so we'll just read through these nine verses. It says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there were uh, there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mercy, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom. The day of Jerusalem who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. So it's primarily a lament song of the fact that they're in Babylon, that Jerusalem is brought low. But those, verse 7 says, and while we were there, who was excited about it? While Babylon came through, who was dancing? Who was watching gleefully right beside them, not helping a brother? Edom was. And so it's condemnation to Edom as well. A few of the other prophets have extended um, statements against Edom. We're just going to read one of them. And let, let's turn to Ezekiel 35. But it is interesting that through both the major and the minor prophets, that Edom keeps coming up. Edom's such a, it's such a small place. It's not militaristically very powerful. Um, it's relatively obscure as far as the world is concerned. But the fact that it has this brotherhood relationship to Israel is one of the reasons that makes it so significant. One of the others is that from the beginning to the end, from exodus to exile, they're always at Israel. They also break treaties that they've made with Israel. And so it's just this 
constant betrayal, treachery, the incessance of their opposition. So look with me in Ezekiel 35. Um, and this whole chapter is against Edom. Know that Mount Seir, uh, which is what's primar- the primary name referent in, ver- in chapter 35, um, references the mountain range of Esau, of Edom. So he says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir, and prophesy against it, and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against you. I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you most desolate. I shall lay your cities waste, and you shall be desolate. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, because you have had an ancient hatred. And have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity when their iniquity came to an end. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood and blood shall pursue you. Since you have not hated blood, therefore blood shall pursue you. And he goes on. We'll pause there. Verse 5 was particularly the point we wanted to read. This ancient hatred and they've shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword. So you can see they've all, these two nations have always been at one another. That's one of the reasons. It's the brotherhood relationship. It's from start to finish the opposition and the betrayal that's involved that are all the reasons that Edom rises to prominence time and time again despite the fact that it is a relatively small and again, obscure on the world scene nation. So, the historical context of Obadiah then is that this is taking place after a significant invasion of Judah and Jerusalem, one in which exiles have been taken. So there really are two primary options, and there's an earlier one and a later one, which is one of the reasons there's conversation around the dating of Obadiah. So either this is the invasion of Jerusalem early by the Philistines and the Arabians during the reign of Jehoram of Judah, which is in the 800s BC. There's an allusion to the fact that some may have been taken out of Jerusalem during that time. The second, and the one that probably most of you are considering, and the one I think we want to lean towards, is the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem, or the waves of invasion from the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar from 605 to 586 BC. And that's recounted at the end of 2 Kings. I think we want to favor the, the, the larger <laughs> invasion, the one that's very clear. One of the reasons that the, some of the other prophets and even the psalm that we just read, like in that psalm, it's very explicitly Edom in reference to Babylon. Um, in in uh, Ezekiel 35, the one we just read, that seems to be in reference to Babylon. So that Edom took advantage in this final stage of Judah when they were laid low by the Babylonians seems to be the prophetic uh, pattern. So with that in mind, let's look at the book. Um, that would place us in the early exile or the er, uh, like during exile or post-exile, early post-exile. That's, that's when that would date Obadiah in that case. So it follows the offense of Edom plundering during the Babylonian invasion and then it predates the fall of Edom, which was 4th and 5th century B.C. So the structure of Obadiah, 
uh, How's It Laid Out. It's a very poetic book, um, and it's the first portion is verse 1 through verse 9, and that is the defeat of Edom predicted. So it's the oracle against Edom, what's going to happen to them, that God's going to bring them low. The second section is verses 10 through 14, and that is Edom's crimes being listed. Why would you bring us so low? Well, here is why, verses 10 through 14. This is how you've treated your brother nation, Israel. 15 and 16 are sort of a hinge. They're a turning point in the book. And on this, on this door, you move from Edom, like look at verse 15, for uh, the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. And so we walk through this door in verses 15 and 16 from a consideration of Edom to an expansion toward all of the nations. So Edom becomes a representative of the whole, not only of the nations that oppose God, but eventually of evil. Uh, and then in 17 through 21, we have the, the other impact of the day of the Lord, which is the restoration of Israel, the final triumph of Israel in the land. So all uh, multiple nations are mentioned, the, the Israel repossesses this property and this final line, and the kingdom belongs to Yahweh exclusively. So it's, a, it's an expansion of the day of the Lord, which we've seen pretty consistently through the prophets. So uh, that's kind of the flow of the book. Let's read through it once, and then we'll talk through some of the details. Um, and then any questions you have, we can, we can tackle. So this is the book of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying... Arise and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as an eagle and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves have come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Uh, would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots in Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. 
You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among whom, uh, them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph, a flame, but the house of Esau, stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captives of, of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad uh, shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors or deliverers shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Okay, so let's walk through a, a little bit more slowly. So verses 2 through 9, we have Edom's defeat predicted. There's a few little poetic pieces here. Verses 2 through 4 is God's declaration of what he's going to do. So you look at the beginning of verse 2, behold, I will make you small among the nations. And then he revisits that at the bottom of verse 4. From there, I will bring you down. So you have these arrows pointing downward, a humbling, a humility that God is going to impress, whether they want it or not, upon the people of Edom. Why is that? Why would God bring them low? Well, because every other uh, point in this verse says that they've lifted themselves up. So they've put themselves very high. Uh, it's, it's historical and actual. It's also metaphorical, uh, speaking of their hearts. So Edom, they're, uh, one of the reasons that they were secure, though they were a small nation, is their fortress. It is sort of their capital city, which is uh, very defensible. It's, on, it's elevated. It's on a high place. And so that's, that's one of the pictures, but that's just a representation of what's actually gone on in their hearts, that they're arrogant, they're lifted up, they're not afraid, they don't have the fear of the Lord. So that's really what he's describing. I'll make you small, even though, the, so the arrogance, the elevation of your heart has tricked you because you believe you're secure. You believe yourselves to be free from the judgment of God. You live in this high spot. You have a defensible position. And you said in your heart, no one can take me down. No one can bring me low. And God says, even if you were an eagle in the sky, which is far higher than they were technically living, and even if you set your nest among the stars. So you could say, he's like, you have a nice high rock. Even if you could fly twice as high as a bird, and even if that bird in some way could build a nest on a star, I'm going to bring you down. So it's just this beautiful, like, escalation, escalation, and then God's like, no. 
you have the Babel image in your head, right? All these people building, building, building. We're going to build the, the biggest building ever, and we're going to reach to the heavens. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And then what happens? God has to come down from heaven to look at the building. He has to descend in order to even view the greatest skyscraper that they have made to date. So there's this bringing low. Now, how low is he going to bring them? Well, let me give you an example of some partial loss. You know how thieves might come in into your home and they're going to carry out as much as they can carry, right? But they can't carry your whole house. You experience partial loss when a thief comes. Or how about these grape gatherers when they come to you, when people swing through your vineyard, when the deer come and eat some of your crop? They can't eat the whole thing, right? There's a limit or there's some sort of incompleteness to the ravaging. That's not how I'm going to treat you. He says, it will be complete. It will be full and final, the supreme bringing low. Verse 6, oh, how Esau shall be searched out. How his hidden treasures shall be sought after. Everything from his most to his least valuable possessions, it will all be found and ravaged. One of the ways that he'll accomplish this is the sting of betrayal, right? Edom's known for betraying. Edom's known for breaking treaties. Yet they have many of them. I remember small nations, not extraordinarily strong militaristically. And so they have a lot of allegiances, a lot of alliances. And God says, the, those that are allegiant to you today, they'll treat you the way you've treated other people. They will betray you. That's verse 7. All the men in your confederacy, they force you to the border. The men at peace with you will deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread, those who sit down with you at the table are going to lay a trap for you. One of the ways God's going to accomplish that is that he is going to remove any semblance of wisdom, discernment, the right way to walk through life, uh, any sort of the, the good aspect of being cunning. He takes all of that away from them. That's verse 8. So the, the God who is the source of wisdom, he steals out all the wisdom from the wise men in Edom. Hey, even from the mountains, right? From the, from the wise men in Edom, there's no more wisdom. Even from the mountains of Esau, all of the understanding is gone. So it's a nation of absolute folly. And that produces dismay and despair and absolute loss. So to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. So not like a thief coming in, not like someone ravaging a vineyard, like God bringing complete judgment. Okay, so total loss compared to impartial loss. And that's the, first, that's the first section. That's Edom's defeat predicted. Now, it's Edom's crime listed. This is why God is going to do that. And you could see, probably even as we were reading through some of the repetition in the poetry here, um, and some of the, uh, the other passages we read earlier, Ezekiel uh, 25 and Psalm 137. These are descriptions of that same thing. So for violence against your brother Jacob. And keep this in mind, the difference between Jacob and Esau. That's uh, used throughout the rest of the book. So for violence against your brother, shame shall cover you and you will be cut off forever. A few, let's just look at the, a few of like the main accusations. First, they supported the plunder of Judah. That's verse 11. 
They stood on the other side. They just watched as strangers uh, carried captive his horses when foreigners entered his gates. And, you, and they just cast lots for Jerusalem. It's like you were there. You were, you were one of them. You participated in it. Whether it's you just watched and didn't help or whether you followed them and sort of jumped in after them, um, you participated in the plunder of Judah. And verses 12 through 14, really strong poetry. There's eight prohibitions that are lifted and they're grouped uh, together. So the first three are all together. Uh, they took advantage of Judah just by gloating over her. So there's a pretty strong verbal element in verse 12. Uh, you, you looked on the day of your brother and you just rejoiced over it. You thought it was awesome to watch him get completely brought low. And you spoke proudly in the day of distress. Because after all, you were allegiant to all those who were coming through to ravage Judah. So you took advantage of Judah by gloating. And then verse 13, there's this plundering Jerusalem. You participated in the plunder. You entered the gate of his people uh, in the day of their calamity. Gaze on their affliction. That's the same phrase as before. And then laid hands on their substance. He says, you shouldn't have done this. 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 All these eight things that they should not have done. So there's a verbal gloating. And then there's this participation in the plunder of Jerusalem. Then verse 14, the final two, they took prisoners. So there was... Um, either they did not help in the retreating Judah or they actually stole some who were on the run, something like this. Uh, they, they stood at the crossroads to cut off the people who were running from Judah as the Jews ran from, Babel, from Babylon. So this is the accusation. You supported the plunder of Judah. You took advantage verbally. You plundered Jerusalem uh, for its stuff and for its people. Now the hinge. And this is a grand expansion, isn't it? From the history of one nation and their interaction with Israel to the complete judgment of all the nations that have opposed God. That's a, that's a big move. And he identifies that the day of the Lord is associated with that move. We've seen that time and time again throughout the prophets. This day of the Lord is a day of, of darkness and of light, a day of judgment and deliverance, this final um, reconciliation of all of those ideas where, God, where Jesus as judge will finally condemn all the nations and he will restore the fortunes of his people. And both of those are eternal realities. And so he makes this move. And all throughout 15 and 16, he shows us, at least poetically or prophetically, how he's going to do that. So first Edom, right? Uh, the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As Edom has done, so Edom will receive. So as they betrayed and oppressed and, and participated in bloodshed, so they will be betrayed and oppressed, participate in bloodshed. But then there's this threefold drinking metaphor. He says, your reprisal shall return on your own head. Okay, so here's 16. This is the first one. For as you drank on my holy mountain, that's the gloating over Israel. That's very similar to what Babel did. Right, they, or Babylon, so I keep saying that. So Babylon, uh, when they come through, they take all the articles out of the temple and they take the goblets and they it's like they drink an exaltation over the god they just believe they've conquered and edom does a similar thing so they go and they celebrate they dance on god's holy mountain and celebrate with wine 
as you did that, so all of the nations are going to do continually. And another glass, and another glass, and another glass, and another glass. There's a shift from the celebration or the warmth, the joy of a drink, to the sort of uh, despair and gloom in the continued drinking. And God says, I'm going to have them keep drinking, and another one, and another one, and another one. Until what? It says, yes, they shall drink and swallow, drink, swallow, and then they shall be as though they had never been. So it moves from a drink of warmth or celebration to drunk to dead. Completely lost. He says, that's what I'm going to do when I move from your celebration on Mount Zion with the drink gloating over me, my mountain. I'm going to have everybody drink the cup of wrath to, unto death. We have also seen that idea a few times throughout the prophets, that particular metaphor of judgment. And so this is the expansion to all of the nations. As Edom will be judged, so all the nations will be judged. And it is interesting here, I'll just make an, uh, an aside comment here. Edom in this book, and this is, an, this is one of the primary themes, Edom in this book is representative of fallen humanity. And that's present even in the name Edom. So the very same root word without vowels, Edom, is Adam. It's just the vowel pointings that make them distinct. So this is a representation of fallen humanity. This is the world against God. And so he uses this as an illustration that the eventual and the final fate of all of those against God is death. And the eventual and the final fate of those who are in the second Adam, in the redeemed, of the redeemed category in Christ, then the final, their final fate is what's revealed in 17 through 20, or through 21. And it revolves around the idea we've seen in Genesis of inheritance. They are the inheritors of eternal life. So let's look at that, and then we'll just we'll, we'll bring this to uh, a close theologically. But stark contrast, right? Drink and drink again and drink again to death. That's the enemies. But, verse 17, stark contrast. On Mount Zion, what exists? Deliverance and holiness. So freedom toward God completely. There's the removal of the old nature present in this idea. There is the presence of wholehearted, complete devotion to Yahweh in this text. Uh, there's freedom from any other interaction with Edom in the text, like Jacob's finally absolutely free from Esau. So humanity is finally free of the old Adam there's deliverance and holiness. And then we get into the idea of inheritance. So the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. It doesn't get much more inheritance verbiage than that, right? The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob, here's a picture of the judgment, shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph, which is, who is whom? That's the son of Jacob. One of the inheritors of Jacob. The lineage of Jacob is present in this text. 
Is the lineage of Esau present in the text? No, the lineage of Esau is completely cut off. But the lineage of Jacob exists and is a participant um, a participant in the judgment. So the house of Jacob is like a fire in the house of Joseph, like a flame, but the house of Esau burnt. So one judging the other. In fact, Jacob and Joseph kindle them, Esau, devour them, Esau, Edom, the nations, and no survivor shall remain to the house of Esau. So once again, the total loss from, oh, it's all chapter one, the total loss from verses five through nine is present here, that there is no eternal inheritance for Esau is present in this text. But that there is a full and final inheritance for the house of Jacob is. And then he'll describe, he sort of plays that out in 19 and 20. Notice all the possession language. So uh, here's the expansion of, of the exiles returning of in the day of the Lord, the people of God returning and fully and finally claiming inheritance. The south possesses the mountains of Esau. The lowlands possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, Benjamin and Gilead. And the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the south. So it's just this grand future final establishment of Israel, the expansion, the inheritance of God's people. Remember just this past week even, the transfer of Laban's wealth to Jacob? Like all of the inheritance of Laban's sons was just transferred to Jacob's sons by God. That similar thing is what's happening here. Like even the south possesses the mountains of Esau. The inheritance of the nations transferred to God's people. Because God, in the end of all things, in his day, is going to fully and finally transfer all of the inheritance to his people. There is nothing left. It is no survivor remaining in the house of Esau. Verse 21 brings it all to a close. So there's the return, then saviors or deliverers. I think this is a reference to um, the just exiles returning. The conquerors, the one who have won, they come to Mount Zion. There's victory. They judge the mountains of Esau. It's, it's fully and finally done. And why has this happened? What's the result of this happening? Different ways to think about it. The kingdom belongs to Yahweh. There's exclusive ownership of the eternal kingdom that belongs to God, the one who fashioned it. And so this does fly in the face of a lot of other religious ideas that perhaps there's maybe some sort of movement forward for us in the end of all things, where we then would be able to possess something like God now possesses. He says, no, there is only one deity. It's exclusively Yahweh. He's the only one that ever has been, and he's the only one that ever will be. And there is either great joy by being his, or there is great loss by not being his. 
And so Edom functions. Like it's easy to look at Edom, particularly as people maybe who in the world think themselves not, not at all like Edom. I mean, look at these guys. They're just vicious and violent, and I'm not vicious and violent. Edom's a representation of every man outside of Christ. Edom's a representation of everyone that has not been humbled by God, eyes opened by God. This verses two through four, this is like, this is very strong salvation imagery. Prior to Christ, what were we? Arrogant, exalted, had a high view of ourselves, a very defensible position. Look at our morality, look at the way that we live, virtue signaling, whatever this might be. Like, this is a very strong view of us. And God says, I'm going to bring that down. I'm going to humble it. And either it's humbled today by his grace, and we enter into the inheritance of Israel. We enter into the inheritance of Jacob and the house of, house of Jacob, the house of Joseph. And we possess eternal life. Or we remain in our stance, in our pride, in Esau, in Edom, in Adam, the first man, and we are fully and finally destroyed in the day of the Lord. That's ultimately what Obadiah is about. It's a historical example of the categories of people in the world. And so when Isaiah says, and he, he says a very similar thing to what Obadiah 21 says, that I am the Lord, there is no other, there is no God besides me, right? The kingdom exclusively belongs to Yahweh. It's a very humbling reminder for us. We never were, never shall be gods. God alone is the one who has done all of these things, accomplished all of these things, and we're either with him or we are without him. So that's what the book of Obadiah is about. I think it's a fitting conclusion uh, to our study in the Minor Prophets. Before we close, we have about 10 minutes, but do you have any questions or things that were unanswered throughout the book, other comments? Um, but those are, I think, the primary theological punches is Edom is representative of Adam, of all of the nations and even all of the people against God, and the supremacy and the finality of Yahweh, that he has the last word and he's the exclusive divinity. But any thoughts as we work through? Maybe things we didn't comment on or things you'd like to add? Is there a country today that occupies the region? Uh, yes, I mean, there is. But the, this, not, not as descendants of Edom. So Edom in uh, 4th or 5th century, and this will probably get re-clarified in a couple of weeks as we go through what happens to this, the Toledot of Esau. But they're conquered um, and I can't remember the name, the nation starts with an N uh, that conquers them, but they get, they get conquered into exile, and the few of them that remain, they go and they uh, just sort of assimilate into some of the other southern Arabian tribes, I believe. So, so is there what the, the, the geographical region that was Edom? So this is just southwest, uh, southeast of the Dead Sea. So whoever's right there. <laughs> Immediately sort of, yeah, east of, east of Israel. I think it's great that, I don't know, I guess this is providential, but you were doing this book along with Genesis, and then as we've been going through with Jacob and Esau, um, 
it's really been enlightening what you read from numbers tonight as well mm-hmm. that when um, Rebecca gives birth the two nations are in you warring how big that is you yep know, first time I read that I thought you know, it's nice. it goes through the entire existence of yeah it's fascinating yeah um, Yep, it fit right in the middle of the Jacob Chronicles, so that was that was cool. Yeah. struggle of the flesh and the spirit, the spirit the flesh. Right. Yeah. I think I think in an encouraging way too, it shows the categories of people that aren't dependent upon their actions. So we don't like those who are in Christ, right? We don't go back and forth from Esau to Jacob to Esau to Jacob. That's, that's not what's occurring. And that's by grace. So there is no flip-flop from righteous to wicked to righteous to wicked. Even though righteous people do wicked things, it's not a, it's not a movement back and forth. So I think it does show the conflict, but the conflict on a bigger scale. Right? There's something that existed in us prior to regeneration and there's something that we're free from post-regeneration while we do still battle with the flesh. So don't consider the flesh Esau, right? Consider the flesh the remnants of Esau. Yeah. Just a quick clarification. Not what you said, but why Edom is Esau? Because that's actually the words. They have no Hebrew connection. Mm-hmm. It's the connection is when Esau wanted the stew, he cried out for the red stuff. Mm-hmm. And Edom means red dirt. And so remember we've studied that before. Mm-hmm. And so most theologians that I have read believe that God made the change to Esau to Edom, or the nation, in order for it to be exactly like you said. A new, another Adam. Yeah. Like it's a, there's no s- s- semantic, no geographical reason why Esau would be called Edom. It's all theological. But that's, that's what I learned when I studied through that. Yep. Jacob and Esau. Yeah. So he's sort of a, a national representation of the first Adam. We'll see that in just a week or two. So it's in, a, it's in association with, uh, it's in that text of the Toledot of Esau, right? So in, yeah, within the next two weeks, it's 33 or something like that, um, that, he, that in his description of his lineage, he describes his land as Edom, is my, is, if I'm remembering right. Okay, Matt's giving me the nod. So he's the one preaching those in a couple of weeks, but. Like, 
Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah, and um, this one is a, is a little more difficult than some of the others, but that's a pretty common prophetic thing to have happen. So this is generally what he's getting at, is the, the, that they get back what was theirs, and it balloons. Like there's an expansion of the land uh, in, the, in the final day, partially because there's no one to inherit the lands of the nations. They're all gone. It's a wasteland. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so everything fully and finally belongs to Yahweh. So yes, uh, if you went through the details of this, you would see that, that there's like basically people going different directions and it's high and low, north, south, east, west, and and expansion, pushing the boundaries. Let's close in a word of prayer.